0: I'm going to have you turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, the last few verses. And while you're finding that text, I'm just going to pray for us briefly. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come this morning to open your word. The treasures are endless. The, the, the jewels of truth that we can mine are overwhelming. And so I pray, Lord, that this morning you would impact our minds with the knowledge of the truth You would cleanse our hearts with the purification given by the truth. And that You would thrill our souls with the knowledge that we have a King who is coming. That we serve a God that we have never seen and yet we see through Scripture. And there will be a day when every eye shall behold Him. And so, Lord, let Your Word speak deeply into our hearts. Change us. Make us more like Christ. Clean the filth and the dirt out of our hearts. Help us, Lord, to be sanctified, to be made more and more holy that we might honor our Savior with our lives. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 4, verse 23, right at the end of the chapter. And Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill. Those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics. And he healed them. And large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Well, this morning we're coming to the close of our first series in Matthew that we've called The First Coming of King Jesus. We've been introduced to Matthew's focus in this gospel. It's very, very clear. That is that the Messiah King promised in the Old Testament has come offering to Israel the earthly and the spiritual kingdom that's also promised in the Old Testament. This case has been made very clearly in our examination of Matthew 1, 2, 3, and 4 over the past 14 messages or so. Now what we're going to see is Matthew's transition to the beginning of the growth of Jesus' ministry. We haven't seen that so far, but all of a sudden, his ministry is going to grow exponentially. In the previous passage, Jesus has called the four brothers, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now his ministry begins this growth period. But in keeping with Matthew's purpose... In these first four chapters, his purpose is to demonstrate that Jesus is the messianic king predicted in the Old Testament, and that the messianic king is, in fact, making a genuine offer to Israel of a glorious theocracy on earth, a God-ruled nation. This morning, we're going to see in this final section, really, the the capstone, the, the icing on the cake, and that is the qualifications of the king. The previous passages we've looked at have utilized evidences such as the genealogy of Jesus, the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, the the response of Joseph and Mary to the announcement of Jesus, the response of the wise men to Jesus, the authoritative kingly bearing with which Jesus conducts himself in commanding his disciples. And those are all wonderful proofs. But now we get to Jesus himself. And he's going to demonstrate that he's absolutely in a class by himself. And in fact, in staying with our kingdom theme, Jesus is going to show beyond a shadow of a doubt his matchless, his unparalleled qualifications as king. And these are undeniable. And I'd like to divide these into 17. Just kidding, we won't do 17. (laughs) But you weren't surprised. I'd like to emphasize four qualifications of our king. And these are epic. Every one of them is epic. Four qualifications. First, the king has authority over Israel. The king has authority over Israel. Those who are detractors of the idea that the kingdom of Christ on earth will be focused first and foremost on Israel as a nation, I believe they have quite an uphill battle to prove that God has given up on Israel. Yes, ultimately, Israel's leaders would officially reject Christ, and as we'll see later on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus himself, he's going to change his style of preaching, and he is going to officially condemn Israel for what they're doing and what they will do in killing them, killing him rather, as their true king. And yes, Jesus is giving a genuine offer now at this moment in this text, a real and genuine offer to be the king of Israel. But God's ultimate plan was that Jesus must be rejected in order to pave the way for him to be the sacrificial lamb of God to pay the penalty of sin, which is the greatest, the most pressing problem of Israel, the most pressing problem of all of humanity. But the case is somehow God has permanently rejected Israel as a nation. This is very difficult to make because the plethora of Old Testament passages that predict Israel will reject God and that God will restore her as a nation are just, they're just everywhere. And I understand and you understand the arguments that are are some flavor of the church is the new Israel or Israel and the church are interchangeable as the people of God. We understand that. But those arguments are thin and they're based on just a very few questionable references, none of which make that case airtight. In fact, God already said that Israel was going to reject her Messiah. That, this is not a surprise. He already predicted this. Isaiah 53, the great chapter concerning the suffering servant Messiah in verse 3, Isaiah is speaking prophetically on Israel's behalf and he writes, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Israel rejected him. And then in verse 5 of Isaiah 53, speaking of the death of Christ and the theological reason for his death, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. For whose? For Israel's. In context. And you might say, but I'm, I'm not Jewish and Jesus died for me too. That's right. That's because God in his grace gave the new covenant to Israel and has included Gentiles in that blessing. Through Christ, through Israel, to all the nations, that was his promise to Abraham. Isaiah 53 is Israel-centered. And if you want to look at the greater context, Isaiah 52, the chapter before, is Israel-centered. Isaiah 54, the chapter after, is Israel-centered. And so Jesus' ministry, he begins Israel-centered. And this is important. to him, it's not a waste of time. If, if God's ultimate plan was to reject Israel outright, he wouldn't be wasting his time. For him, this is an investment, even though Israel will temporarily reject him. And how do we know He began Israel-centered? Well, verse 23 gives us three big clues. First, Jesus is teaching in the synagogues. He's teaching in the synagogues. This is completely Jewish in nature. The synagogues, uh, synagogue just is, is an English pronunciation of the Greek word, which is a compound word. This just means the bringing together place, the place where we come together. The synagogues developed after the exile with those who returned as they spread out across the region. They were local places for gathering, for, for prayer, for the study of the Torah, for the, the law of God. They were even used as a community court for disputes meeting places, for fellowship times, for celebrations. And unlike our local churches, generally, synagogues were open all the time. And they, you could have debates or speeches fairly spontaneously, and it functioned as the Jewish version of the town square. And so if you wanted to go find out where a bunch of Jews were hanging out, you went to the synagogue. And that's where Jesus goes. Matthew is very clear here. He makes the distinction between the teaching of Jesus And the preaching of Jesus. Now there's a lot of overlap to those two. But it seems the teaching part of his ministry in Galilee. The northern province of Palestine or Israel. The teaching part is specific to the synagogues. This is where people who wanted more detailed information about the word of God. This is where they went to learn. This is where they went to understand. And so it seems most likely that his teaching ministry is focused on those who are already familiar with basic Content, the basic understanding of kingdom theology, those who understand that there is a Messiah given in the Old Testament, there is a coming kingdom and want to know details. So his teaching is very detail-oriented. We even do this in our own church, our Bible Training Institute, the Bible Survey portion that we teach is designed under the assumption that the listener has already read the particular book of the Bible that we're teaching about. And so, the teaching ministry of Jesus would be more the advanced kingdom theology that he would have been giving. But the second reason we know that Jesus was Israel-centered at the outset, not only was there his teaching ministry in the synagogues, Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Literally, the good news of the kingdom. This is a call to action based on the truths that are being taught. What will you do with this truth? Will you believe? Will you be in the kingdom? And because the teaching of the the truth in their synagogues, the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, isn't phrased teaching and preaching in the synagogues, it's fair to assume that the preaching portion may have been more open air, more public, As Jesus was in the habit of preaching, even by the seaside at the Sea of Galilee, or even in in individual homes. In the synagogues, the explanations of Scripture and specific teaching concerning the kingdom is accompanied by now a more general call to obey the truth. And this is very highly specific to the Jew, because it was to the Jews initially that God promises this kingdom. Now Gentiles will share, but Israel is the catalyst. And they're the primary nation of the coming kingdom of Christ. And the third reason we know that Jesus is Israel-centered at the outset, he begins by healing only Jews. He begins by healing only Jews. The specific Greek word used at the end of verse 23, among the people, that specific word is used 13 other times in Matthew, and every single time it refers to Jews only. When Matthew in his gospel refers to other people, he uses ethnos, meaning anyone who's not Jewish, and it's most often translated Gentiles. But at the end of verse 23, every kind of sickness among the people. Later on in Matthew 15, Jesus is going to affirm that I was sent first to the lost sheep of whom? Of Israel. That was his initial primary focus. So Jesus is demonstrating in no uncertain terms the king has authority over Israel and he's making an investment in his future nation. We could identify a second qualification. The king has authority over all disease. The king has authority over all disease. Verse 23 says that Jesus was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. The Greek text simply says every disease and every sickness, but the use of two different words, disease and sickness, make it very clear that Matthew is, isn't merely just saying that Jesus healed every person who had a malady of some sort, but that nothing was off limits, that everything was up for grabs to be healed. There, there were no off-stage screeners like the fake healer's, did I say fake healer's? That's what I meant to say. A fake healer's, basketball arena event to make certain that only certain types of physical ailments get seen by the superstar on stage in the glittering jacket more about that later Jesus healed every type of disease first of all it's a general word for an illness or a disease of any kind that's identifiable that the medical knowledge of the day could, could provide a name for it at the very least maybe they didn't have a cure but they had a name for it they knew what it was he healed every type of disease and he healed every type of sickness. That's basically everything else. Debility, weakness. It can mean lack of energy. It can even mean a, a delicate physical nature, a physical infirmity without a clear cause, without, a, without a, a, a name, even. So, in other words, diseases we know and diseases we don't. He healed them all. Now, that's very convincing. But Matthew, the great master theologian of kingdom theology, he goes to tremendous lengths to solidify the case that the king has authority over all diseases. As Jesus' healing ministry continues in verse 24, he heals all who were ill and he healed various diseases, meaning diversified, a, a wide variety. There were, there were no type of disease, there was no, no uh, a category of disease that was off limits. And pains, meaning any condition that causes torment or torture, pain to the one who's afflicted. And now, like a carpenter who wants to add just a couple of more redundant nails, Matthew lists two sample types of diseases, just to demonstrate, just to make this case rock solid. Epileptics and paralytics. Epileptics. Are mentioned also in the english standard version and it translates this more generally as those having seizures in greek the word is literally moonstruck that was from the belief that the seizures were brought on by phases of the moon that tells you how desperate they were for answers to blame the moon on these seizures now there is very good evidence that this is specifically epilepsy as we know it because other more detailed incidents in the gospels fit the symptoms of epilepsy very specifically. Mark chapter 9 describes a boy falling to the ground, convulsing, then becoming rigid, foaming at the mouth and grinding his teeth. That is indicative of a grand mal seizure. The boy in Mark 9 that Jesus heals of epilepsy, in that particular case, Jesus accurately assessed that his epilepsy was demonically caused and Jesus deals with that problem directly as well. But here in Matthew 4, Jesus also is dealing with what Matthew calls demoniacs. And it seems a lot of people were suffering from epilepsy. It was common, so demonic influence would likely be a major cause. The epileptic person suffers greatly. It's a central nervous system disturbance in which the electrical currents aren't, aren't working right. They can be disturbed and they cause anything from small twitching of the face or the hands all the way to sharp abdominal pain or even momentary or lengthy unconsciousness in just the small seizures all the way to the grand mal seizures which last for several minutes and completely dominate the body in just absolute torture. The people were desperate for help. They're in terrible spiritual darkness. All they think is that the moon causes something. They're at the mercy of demonic powers. They're at the mercy of the spiritual darkness that they're bathed in. Now, the word paralytics here isn't as specific as epileptic. This is more of a general term, and it could have a variety of meanings. It could be a partial paralysis from an injury at birth or afterwards uh, causing an inability to walk. Very often in the Bible, epileptics are also called the lame. It could be an organic disease of the central nervous system causing a a temporary or a permanent loss of feeling or, or voluntary muscle control. Sometimes it's referred to by its shortened name rather than paralytic, just palsy. Palsy is just a shortened form of paralysis, any type of central nervous system disorder that causes lameness or difficulty with muscle control. The servant of the centurion in Matthew 8 and the parallel passage to the same story in Luke 7 was described as being paralyzed in Matthew 8 and at the point of death in Luke 7. What is that? He was suffering from a fatal form of paralysis that starts in the feet, moves up the legs, and eventually paralyzes the muscles that allow you to breathe. And so he was slowly asphyxiating until Jesus healed him. Jesus is often seen Healing paralytics, again, seemed to be a very common malady in the ancient world. Even in our world today, with all of our advanced technology, everything we know, all of our medical prowess and with accessible vehicles and accessible buildings, paralysis or palsy, central nervous system disorder are are life-altering and they're mostly incurable. And Jesus is just healing them one after another, after another, after another, put it this way, in the region of Galilee, by the time he was done, everyone could walk. Everyone. Unless we think this is just a a quick little sentence here, I I don't want to rush by this. I want you to imagine the scene of person after person being brought to Jesus, having maybe just had a grand mal seizure or or in the middle of one, and he's suddenly freed and in his right mind and, and strengthened Can you imagine those with cerebral palsy, either barely walking or having to be helped by family, coming to Jesus, suddenly having the electrical currents in their brain work right, their previously useless muscles and limbs now in perfect, full working order? Can you imagine those paralyzed, those paralyzed from birth even, having to be cared for and washed and cleaned and fed in a time when life already was just a daily fight for survival in a hand-to-mouth existence. And they're suddenly strong. Yeah, it might have been one thing for Jesus to declare, I have authority over all disease. But he demonstrated it in no uncertain fashion, person after person after person after person. The Gospel of John says that if all the miracles of Jesus were actually recorded, they would fill the libraries of the world. These healings are directly connected to the coming kingdom. And this is what I want you to get. They're connected to life that is yet to come. Jesus is proving that he is the king that will rule. And this kingdom is what what will be. It will be a place where the king eradicates disease on a global level. He's just giving a little preview here. What a tremendous thing to look forward to. Here's a third qualification that Jesus demonstrates. The king has authority over all evil. The king has authority over all evil. In verse 24, we get a one word mentioned. The demoniacs were brought to Jesus. Those oppressed by demons. Demons are the fallen angels that rebelled and fell with Satan. Satan is called in Matthew 12, 24, the prince of the Demons. Demons fall into two groups, generally speaking. Group number one are free demons. They have a, a certain amount of limited freedom to oppose God as Satan, Satan's underlings. These are certainly the demons that Jesus is dealing with here. There's a second group, confined demons, which Second 2 Peter 2.4 says have been cast into the pit or the abyss of chains of darkness, being kept for judgment at the end of time. Jude verse 6 says that they're kept in eternal bonds for judgment in the great day. And what's the reason that they're, they're confined? Why are they confined? Why are they these two groups? Jude 6 says they, quote, abandoned their proper abode. There's very good evidence that these demons abandoned their proper abode, their proper place, their limits given by God by taking human form. And that these are the, quote, sons of God in Genesis 6 verse 2 who took human women for themselves multiplying wickedness on the earth and leading eventually to the flood of Noah. They're confined. Demons are spirit beings like angels but they aren't omnipresent. They're not all present everywhere. They're not all powerful. They're localized and they follow the orders of their master Satan. Demons are extremely intelligent they even accurately identified the Son of God for exactly who He was in Mark chapter one. They know their eventual doom. Mar- Matthew 8:29 says this. They know the gospel of Jesus Christ. They know the plan of salvation for men. James 2:19 says that the demons also believe what the previous verse describes as gospel faith, but they work against it on purpose. James 2.19 also says that demons shudder at their belief in God, at their belief that the gospel is true. It will lead to their eternal torment and they know it. It's not that the demons don't believe that the gospel is true. They just don't want anybody else to believe it. Demons have a well-developed doctrinal system which they promote, a system which often impersonates biblical Christianity in certain ways. Verse uh, 1 of 1 Timothy 4 says, The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Human beings in their own power without God's help have no power against demons as the Gospels demonstrate. Utterly powerless. Demons do all kinds of things. First and foremost, generally speaking, they try to counteract the purposes of God. They're working against God. They extend Satan's ruling influence in the world. Ephesians 2 says that Satan is the prince of this world, a a temporary position allowed by God. They make Satan seem like he's everywhere. They make Satan seem omnipresent. Satan is not omnipresent. We may speak of Satan's activity. That doesn't necessarily mean Satan himself, but those under his rule. Demons can inflict diseases. They can possess animals. Mark chapter 5, they're adept at promoting false doctrine through false teachers. That's the main way they do that. Demons are at times used by God to carry out God's sovereign will. First Samuel 16 records that when God's favor left King Saul, God withdrew the positive help and presence of the Holy Spirit and instead, quote, an evil spirit from Yahweh terrorized him. Even in these gospel accounts with demonic activity on a rampage, by the way, because of the presence of the Son of God, demonic activity at a level that has never been seen since before the flood. God is using demons to demonstrate Christ's power and authority over evil. He's, he's using them to further the gospel because they help Jesus qualify himself. Demons are vitally concerned with the events of history and even of specific nations. Daniel 10, verse 13 references the prince of the kingdom of Persia fighting God's holy angels. A a demon so powerful that it took the archangel Michael to come and achieve victory. Isaiah 24, 21 speaks of a day when Yahweh will punish the hosts of heights on high and the kings of the earth on earth. In other words, the demonic powers behind the kings and the kings themselves. And for millennia, Demons have masqueraded as gods, playing the part of false gods even to the point of demonstrating displays of power to convince the worshippers of the reality of their existence. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that when someone sacrifices to an idol, they're sacrificing to demons. Demons may possess the spiritually helpless person. In the Bible, cases of demon possession include the indwelling of a demon or even many demons, even thousands of demons, exerting direct control over a person's mind and body. Now there are some who dispute the idea of possession and they define it more as demonic influence or oppression. The result is the same though. The result can be physical problems or what the world calls mental illness. If it's demonic in nature, there's no biological, neurological cause unless that's the means that the demon uses To cause this problem. I want to be very clear. On two major points. That we should bring up. First of all. Christians cannot be possessed by demons. Christians can't be possessed by demons. The believer in Christ. Is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And if I could put it this way. The Holy Spirit doesn't share space. Holy Spirit provides protection. This doesn't mean that Satan and his demons. Are unable to negate. Or to, to provide a negative influence. Churches are beset by what Paul calls the doctrine of demons. But the Christian can't be possessed. Second thing we should be clear about, never in the New Testament are Christians called to cast out demons. Not one time. Nor are we ever given instructions on how to do so, with the exception of Jesus telling the disciples on one occasion that stronger demons only come out by prayer. So you might ask, well... What is the cure for demon possession? First of all, you don't have the spiritual power to know that that's what it is. You don't have that power. But what's the cure? You ready for this? The gospel is the cure. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when the Holy Spirit regenerates and indwells, He cleans house. No more demons. In Mark 3... Jesus had been accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And he answers that charge superbly. He says, beginning in verse 23 of Mark 3, How can Satan cast out Satan? It's not in the text, but don't you want to put a duh there? How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But then, Jesus takes this a step further and he asserts his ability to cast out demons that it proves his authority over evil and it proves his superior power over Satan himself. He goes on to say, but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man And then he will plunder his house. The strong man is Satan who has property in the so-called house of a person's mind and heart and being, meaning he has control. There's demonic influence. There's influence over the person himself under this demonic control. The person, capital P, entering the house is able to bind the strong man Satan, get rid of the demons, free the captive person from this horrible torment and now claim ownership over the house and that person is Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. I've seen cinematic portrayals of Jesus casting out demons. And by the way, for me, and this isn't a legalistic law, I never watch movies that are meant to portray anything in the Bible. You want to know why? They always fall short. Every time I'd rather read the truth and not be tainted by that. That's another issue for another day. But I have seen cinematic representations of jesus casting out demons and and he's often portrayed as working really hard at it there's never that portrayal in scripture in luke 11 he cast out a demon causing inability to speak and the man immediately began to speak in matthew 8 matthew gives the detail that jesus was casting out demons quote with a word i don't know what the word was just out and that's it in Mark 1, he was casting out demons and forbidding them from speaking. They obeyed him. Luke 4, demons coming out of many kept shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and stopped them from speaking further. In Luke 13, he predicted that he was about to cast out demons and then he did it. In Luke 4, he kept a demon from harming the one possessed while the demon came out. In Mark 8, or Matthew 8 rather, demons are compelled to obey Christ. They're sent into a herd of swine, who promptly all go commit pigicide. In Mark nine, he commanded the demon that he was never allowed to torment his victim ever again. The testimony of those seeing this demon, seeing demons cast out, I think, is best represented by the statement made in Matthew nine thirty three: "Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. There is no comparison." Earlier in chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And we talked about His victory against Satan. And as soon as Jesus was victorious against Satan, he, He comes out swinging, so to speak. He didn't just somehow barely escape Satan's power. No, He exerts authority over Satan's demons with impunity and with ease anytime He wants to. Immediately, the kingdom of Christ is already making inroads, is already degrading the kingdom of Satan, already causing erosion to the kingdom of Satan, showing that Satan will ultimately be defeated. 1 John 3.8 says that the Son of God was manifested for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. You know what Jesus casting out demons is? It's just the warm-up. It's just Him going, that's it. It is just him saying, "You haven't seen anything yet. He will ultimately destroy the works of the devil, and all the demons know it. This is the king, the one with authority over all evil. So the fourth qualification: The king has authority over all nations. The king has authority over all nations. We showed a while ago that the king has authority over Israel, but the rule and reign of Christ was never meant to be merely localized to Israel. And Jesus demonstrates this in this short account. In verse 24, news about him spreads all throughout Syria. That's generally speaking the northern area north of Palestine or Israel. In verse 25, large crowds came from Galilee, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, from Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Galilee. This is the northern province of Israel in Jesus' day. 300,000 people in over 200 villages and towns lived in Galilee. And Jesus continues to fulfill the prophetic hope and emphasis given in Isaiah 9 that a great light has come to Galilee. The Decapolis was a Gentile district just to the south and east of the Sea of Galilee. and It literally means the ten cities, primarily with Gentiles, but with Jews living there as well. And of course, Jerusalem... Crowds came all the way to the north from Jerusalem and the religious leaders in Jerusalem were offering only endless, unkeepable rules and regulations. They didn't have a king to offer, but Jesus is offering Himself and showing this is what a Messianic king looks like. And they, they came in droves from Jerusalem. They also came from Judea, which is the region right around Jerusalem in the Old Testament. It's known as Judah basically the same territory, and so people are coming from the surrounding towns and villages all around Jerusalem as well, and then they're coming from beyond the Jordan, the region known as Perea, P-E-R-E-A, the territory north and east of the Jordan River. What's Matthew's point here? Geographically, Matthew has basically drawn a circle around Jesus, a big circle Now the word is spreading and as we see throughout the Gospels, more and more Jesus intersects with the Gentiles as represented by this small microcosm here of surrounding peoples. Because of his ministry to the Jews, his fame spread to the Gentiles and now the Gentiles also are bringing in the sick and the oppressed among them. And so Matthew 4 just ends on this high note of Jesus absolutely showing His qualifications. And while some would say that the kingdom of Christ has already arrived or that it somehow arrived spiritually in some sort of invisible fashion, Jesus has clearly shown what will be normal in the coming kingdom when He returns. He's shown His first qualification. The king has authority over Israel. Psalm 24 pictures in prophetic hope the coming of the king of glory to the holy mountain of God, Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 7 predicts the son of David sitting on the throne of David over Israel forever. In fact, some of the Gospels even recognize this and they call Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. The first qualification, the king has authority over Israel. The third qualification, the king has authority over all evil. He authority over all evil. Satan is the one that 1 Peter warns we must watch out for in this age. He is the one that Ephesians 2 calls the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He's the one that Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world. But when Christ sets up his kingdom on earth... About the first thing he does, according to Revelation 20, is bind Satan in the pit or the abyss where all the bound demons are, and by logical inference, all the free demons are going to be bound with him as well. Can you imagine a world with no satanic influence? The fourth qualification the king has authority over the nations. Psalm 2 proclaims the coming of the Messiah to be the king over all the earth. We read earlier Zechariah 14 that when Christ returns he will be king over all the earth. Zechariah 2:11 we also read many nations will join themselves to Yahweh in that day and become my people. And yes, I skipped the second qualification, the king has authority over all disease. I want to camp on that for a little bit. Listen to our logic. If what is normal in the future coming kingdom is that Jesus will assert authority over all Israel, he'll assert authority over evil by binding Satan, he'll assert authority over all nations by reigning visibly and in person, then logically what will be normal in the coming kingdom is that the king will show his authority over all disease. But like the other three qualifications, not yet. Not yet. And yet one of the greatest deceptions happening in the Christian world is that physical healing is always available now. Always God's will. That that Christians with true faith don't get sick or injured or they're quickly healed of these things. I felt that this was as good a place as any to address the issue of divine healing. Is that something that you should expect as normal today? Not from this text. Not from this text. Jesus was not giving the preview of what the entire church age would be like. He was giving the preview of what the coming millennial kingdom will be like. God does heal today, but he doesn't heal on demand. And he doesn't heal as a normal course of events by true healers, such as Jesus and the apostles in the early days of the church to confirm the message of the gospel And so, just to use this as kind of a a segue to think about this issue, to warn all of us and to be clear about this issue, I want to give you six hallmarks of false theology of divine healing. Six hallmarks of false theology of divine healing. The first hallmark of this false theology is that healing is always God's will. Healing is always God's will. Most so-called healers and and generally accepted healing theology, if I could use those two words together, teach that healing is always God's will. But the fact is, some of the greatest saints in the Bible, God chose to allow to continue with physical infirmities. Jacob with his hip. Paul left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Paul himself was ill in Galatians 4. So-called healers teach that a person... Being healed, they must have enough faith, and that absolves them of any responsibility when healing doesn't occur. But not everyone had faith in the Bible who was healed. None of the dead people raised from the dead were, had any faith. Were there anybody, any other people in the Bible, any other believers that God left sick? All of them. Why? Because they all died. The true gift of healing that Jesus is showing here is something that will eventually extend life forever. There's a second hallmark. Healing is a spiritual secret you must discover. Healing is a spiritual secret you must discover. Divine healing is taught as being this, this secret thing you must figure out, that you must resist sickness in the same way you resist sin, whatever that means, that you confess what you possess and vice versa. So if you talk about sickness, then you're going to get sick. If you talk about health, then you'll be well. You know what that is, saying that your words have power? That's called witchcraft. And since sin is the cause of your sickness, your your illness means you haven't figured out some sin pattern in your life and God is waiting for you to figure it out before He heals you. Sickness shows that you're out of the will of God somehow. And the result of this, particularly in the last 120 years or so, has been disillusioned, confused, disappointed people who were given false spiritual information, by the way, completely disconnected from the biblical gospel. There's a third hallmark of this false theology. Sickness is purely satanic. Sickness is purely satanic. Since all sickness is supposedly from Satan, nothing good can come of sickness. But in the Old Testament, God made more people sick than He healed. He afflicted Pharaoh's household, Genesis 12, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, the household of Abimelech, Rachel, Jacob, Moses, the firstborn of Egypt, Nadab and the Bihu, Miriam, Israel on several occasions in the book of Numbers, Hannah, Philistines, the infant son of David, Israel again, Jeroboam, Gehazi, Sennacherib's entire army, Jehoram, Uzziah, Ezekiel's wife, and Nebuchadnezzar. It's like every third chapter he's making somebody sick or dead. In the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul affirmed that many in the church were ill or who even had died because they were inappropriately receiving the Lord's table. Many so-called healers have a way around this. They teach concerning their countless failed healings that God has healed you. It's just that Satan won't let the symptoms leave. You know how many people in the Bible Satan made sick? One. Job. Job 1 and 2. And that was with God's permission. This system portrays an overly strong Satan and a very weak God. Here's a fourth hallmark of this false theology that healing is synonymous with salvation. The healing is synonymous with salvation. How can you tell a faith healer who's who's a fake? First of all, they all are, so that's easy. But secondly, the gospel gets put to the wayside. It's not about the gospel. Healing is confused with spiritual salvation such that the main emphasis is healing itself with barely any mentions of the gospel. That if God heals you, you're saved because God has clearly shown favor to you. and, And it's emphasized something like this. Isn't it great that God has forgiven you of your sins? But it's much better that He's healed this problem with your foot. And that's the emphasis given. What's the proper em- emphasis? God has saved me from all my sins, and whatever He does in this life, I don't care. Because when we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when He's first begun. And we'll probably dance a little too. So, what you do to my foot in this life, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You cannot equate healing with salvation. And you know how we prove this? God healed unbelievers. In the Old Testament, Genesis 12, Pharaoh's household. Genesis 20, Abimelech's household. 1 Kings 13, Jeroboam. 2 Kings 5, Naaman. 2 Chronicles 30, unbelieving Israelites. Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar. In the New Testament, Jesus healed an unbelieving leper. In Matthew 8, 10 lepers who didn't believe. In Luke 17 and in John 5, a lame man by the pool of Bethesda who rejected Christ and yet he healed them. So you cannot equate... Healing with salvation. It's the fifth hallmark, a fifth error. Divine healers have the spiritual gift of healing. Divine healers have the spiritual gift of healing. Not to shock you, but the Bible never one time speaks of a singular gift of healing. Did you know that? Not once. It speaks of gifts of healings. Gifts of healings appears only three times in the New Testament, both plural, all in in 1 Corinthians 12. It never appears in any other of the New Testament lists of spiritual gifts. Gifts of healings, both words are plural in Greek. And what does that mean? There's various options. It could be various methods of healing. It could be various occasions of healing, various assignments of the gifts to different people, In the same passage, with gifts of healing, there are other parallel plurals, workings of miracles, distinguishings of spirits, kinds of tongues. In other words, these were numerous, one-time, unusual manifestations of healing being temporary, and they could only be renewed by the will of God at any given time. And we see this illustrated. For example, Paul healed multitudes in Acts chapter 19, but he didn't heal Epaphroditus in Philippians 2. He didn't heal Trophimus in 2 Timothy 4. He didn't heal himself in Galatians 4. I don't know about you, but if I have the quote-unquote gift of healing, I'm never getting sick again. James 5, 13-18 is the occasion of a sick person James didn't call for this person to get somebody with the gift of healing or the gifts of healings more properly, but to call for the elders. Because in this case, his illness is connected to confronted, unconfessed, known sin that he's refusing to deal with. Other than the 1 Corinthians 12 passage, occurrences of someone actually exercising these gifts of healings are very rare. And they're all during the very early days of the establishment of the church and the gospel. Paul was stoned nearly to death in Lystra. Barnabas was with him, but he didn't heal him. And Barnabas had been recorded as healing others at other times. I mean, if I'm going to heal anyone, Paul's at the top of the list, but he didn't do it. Why? Because it wasn't given by God at that particular moment to do. The gifts of healings were primarily a sign given to authenticate the apostles themselves as the messengers of Christ. Hebrews 2 verse 3 says how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation that salvation first spoken by the lord was confirmed to us by those who heard that's the apostles god also testifying with them that's the apostles both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the holy spirit according to his own will i'm not making this up this is just bible fact later epistles first and second timothy and titus are go to Books on how the church is to function. If healing was to be so prevalent, why did first Timothy, second Timothy, and Titus not mention it one time? In fact, Timothy suffered from frequent illnesses, 1 Timothy 5.23. And Paul makes no mention of having healed them. He didn't send him a blessed handkerchief or anything like that. The apostolic signs gradually disappeared. They were less and less forefront. They had served their God-intended purposes. And listen, this is just the short version of this. This is easily provable. There's not enough information on the gifts of healings to prove a theology that some people still have it. They don't, and history has borne this out. And every person who claims to have what they call the gift of healing is always associated with a false gospel, always associated with terrible theology, always associated with leading people spiritually astray. When Jesus and the apostles were healing, it was most often spectacular and healing many multitudes of people of every kind of illness, not just those that could be faked or psychosomatically conjured up temporarily, Stories of so-called healings being very temporary are so many that I won't bore you with listing all the ones that have been discovered. Let me give you one more hallmark of this false theology. Divine healing might be gradual or even partial. Divine healing might be gradual or even partial. This is a very convenient theology because when you have 10,000 people in an auditorium and somebody on stage that doesn't quite do what you hope they're going to do, then you can proclaim, well, healing's on the way. That's not what happened in the Bible, though. When God healed miraculously through the Old Testament prophets, through Christ, or through the apostles, every single healing had numerous qualities in common. The healings were instant and immediate. In all of Jesus' healings, only three have any sort of delay. And the delay is not days, weeks, or months. The delay is minutes or seconds. The healings were in public for anyone to see. The healing was spontaneous, not during a planned event such as a so-called healing service where you had to go through a screener and and nine out of ten people are sent back to their seats in dejection. The healings included illnesses that were unknown or untreatable by medical knowledge of the time. Healings were always complete. They were always irreversible. And the healings were undeniable. You know who it's important to find out did not deny the miracles of Jesus? It was his enemies. They never said the healings were fake. They believed them. Now, to be very clear, to use a double negative here, this does not mean that God is not healing today. This is different than the gifts of healings. But the purpose of Christ's healing ministry was very much not only to demonstrate His love and compassion, but to demonstrate what the coming kingdom would be like. The healings were a powerful invitation to join that kingdom by placing saving faith in Christ. So do we believe in healing? Yes. We just don't believe in healers. We don't believe in them. They don't exist today. We don't need them. Now, let me poke a little hole in this and then we'll try to fill it up again. Because someone might ask, but what about Psalm 103 verse 3 which says that God heals all your diseases? And what about 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25, which quotes Isaiah 53 that says, By his wounds you have been, what? Healed. Well, let's just do a little Bible study. Let's start with the 1 Peter 2 passage. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25, and I'll just, we're short on time, so I'll just highlight this for you. There's five elements to these two verses. And they all have to do with one thing, salvation. You have the event of His salvation. 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. You have the reason for salvation so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. You have the necessity of salvation for you were continually straying like sheep. You have the outcome of salvation, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And right in the middle, you have the means of salvation. By His wounds, you were healed. You have the event, the reason, the means, the necessity, the outcome of salvation. Salvation, 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 salvation. What is that talking about? Salvation. Psalm 103, verse 3, in its greater context, that God is the one who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, This is a greater picture, same as 1 Peter 2, of spiritual salvation. Which, by the way, will ultimately result in what? God healing all your diseases. When you are in your resurrection body, you won't even get so much as the sniffles. And so, will God heal all your diseases? Absolutely. Die first and it's done. But staying consistent, the four ways the king demonstrates his authority are all things yet to come. The false expectation of divine healing as somehow being the norm has done such harm to the church. It's promoted demonic ideology that God's intention is that that now is the best and most blessed life that you should enjoy. It has separated God and the gospel. It has put the emphasis on getting something from God instead of worshiping God It certainly has taken away any idea of walking through trials by faith because if you have a trial or an illness, that means something's wrong with you and God is mad at you. I can't speak for every Christian, but I think I speak for all of you here. I enjoy a blessed life. I enjoy a blessed life. Only the Christian can look at trials with a future view. Only the Christian can say your best life later and be excited about that. I've had the opportunity to do a lot of counseling with families, with believers with a fatal illness. And you know, one of the issues that comes up is that Christians don't want to get treated. They're like, why would I walk through three years of agony when I can go home in a couple months? Only the Christian can do that. Because our death is the glorious entrance into the presence of Christ. Only the Christian can say... Life may be filled with difficulties now. It may be filled with infirmity now. It may be filled with sickness and, and handicap and inability and, and pain, even. But when the kingdom of Christ comes to earth, all will be made right. What Jesus did was give a preview of his coming reign on earth, and oh, it's glorious! Isaiah 29, "...on that day the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of darkness and thick darkness the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in Yahweh, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One." Isaiah 32, beginning in verse 3, "...then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded. The ears of those who hear will pay attention. The heart of the hasty will discern knowledge. The tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly." Isaiah 33, and no one who dwells there will say, I am sick. The people who inhabit there will be forgiven their iniquity. Isaiah 35, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Isaiah 65, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be joyful in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the voice of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fulfill his days. In Micah chapter 4, in that day declares Yahweh, I will assemble the lame and gather the banished, even those upon whom I have brought calamity. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a mighty nation. And Yahweh will reign over them in Mount Zion, from now on and forever. And that's just the millennial reign of Christ on earth when there are still descendants of survivors of the great tribulation. There's still sin in the world. That's just the time between the current state and the final state in the final state. Isaiah 25, 8, He will swallow up death for all time. And Lord Yahweh will wipe tears away from all faces and He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth for Yahweh has spoken in Revelation 21:4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things passed away, and you might say, Oh, I want that. Then you must place your faith in that king in order to enter that kingdom. There is no other way. Jesus said it very simply, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You want to be part of that kingdom where you are as strong as you were when you were 18 years old, forever and ever and ever, and perfect in every way? Then you must bend the knee and you must tell God, I am a wretched sinner who deserves only your judgment in hell, and I need forgiveness. And then he'll give you a new heart. And he'll qualify you to join that kingdom. I I know for some who listen to the preached word, there are some who doubt and some who are still constricted by, oh, I'm not sure if all of that's true. But when you're in heaven, could I give a giant, righteous, holy, I told you so? (laughs) Jesus told us to pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, healing, authority, perfection, everything on earth as it is in heaven. That's a prayer for the future. It's our hope for the present. Let's pray. Our Father, that is the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And while we live in the world now that is ruled by the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, we are not ruled by him. We are ruled by the king who lives in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we look forward to that grand invasion when Christ comes and takes back what is rightfully his and turns this into the world that it was originally meant to be. And so, Lord, for those of us who know Christ as Savior, we're thrilled beyond measure. At the authority of our coming King. How powerful and mighty and strong He is. But we are also concerned, Lord, for the lost. For those who, for lack of humility, to bend the knee to the King for a minute. To bow the head before the King of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords for a moment. And to acknowledge I am a sinner in need of grace. They would pridefully spend all of eternity in the judgment of hell. A concept so dark and horrifying we can't wrap our minds around it. And yet that is the only rightful place for all pride. And so Lord, I pray for a man or a woman, a boy or a girl hearing this message that this would be the day that they believe that the king has all authority, authority over their sin, authority to forgive sin, and authority to transform them from being citizens of the kingdom of darkness to citizens of the kingdom of light. May you save this day because you are a good and mighty and gracious God. And it's in Christ's name we pray.